Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. This episode is brought to you by Gilt. So when it comes to building wealth, taxes are such a big part of the strategy. And even if you're already filed, being proactive about this year to lower your future liability is so important. Gelt actually provides a proactive approach to tax strategy, combining innovative technology and expert CPAs by creating personalized tax strategies for your unique financial needs of multiple revenue streams, M&As, restricted stocks, various investments and more. You can keep your hard earned money. Our, their proprietary platform ultimately gives you the full transparency of your tax management and direct communication with your CPA to reach your financial goals and grow for your wealth faster. So again, you know, if you're interested in this, go to joingelt.com uh, and they are actually on the show notes that I'm going to be posting a very special offer for you all that you can actually enjoy. So again, you know, joingelt.com. Dot com. All right. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Dealmaker Show. So super excited about the guest that we have today. You know, he's a, a really amazing founder, uh, and I find that you're going you're gonna to really see how inspiring his journey is. He's riding a rocket ship right now, uh, and, uh, and I think that you're going to be learning a lot from his story, from his journey uh, on really bringing this to where it is today. So without further ado, let's welcome our guest today. Vishal Sunak, welcome to the show. Hey, Alejandro. Thanks. So born in Brazil. So, so give us a walk through memory lane. How was life growing up, Vishal? Yeah, I was born in Brazil. My sister and I were born in Brazil. We're, we're Indian. My parents were living there. Uh, we moved to America in 1985. We moved to Rhode Island. So uh, I always wonder uh, why we left Sao Paulo to move to Rhode Island, but for great opportunities ahead in America. Uh, I, I grew up in Southern Rhode Island near the University of Rhode Island. Uh, my dad's uh, still teaching there, PhD, electrical engineering. That's how I grew up. Uh, then eventually found my way to Boston, which has always been kind of my home. Followed my older sister, actually, to Boston for uh, education. I uh, went to Northeastern, studied engineering, and then uh, been living in New England most of my life. Uh, I worked in the defense industry in New Hampshire, and then Moved down to Boston uh, and spent the last decade working in B two B software. You know, it, it it's really quite quite the journey, and 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 then also you know hats off to your parents too. Uh, as an immigrant to to the U.S. myself, you know I understand you know what it takes, uh, and 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 going you know to Brazil, coming here to the U.S. remarkable. You know how was how was it for you to be able to 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 experience you know this 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 drive that your parents have to, or, or, and, and that had at that moment to really give you guys a better future? Yeah, you, you kind of grow up a little bit differently knowing that you're the first kind of part of your family that is trying this great American dream. And, and so, you know, heavy focus on education is the key and pathway for a, a bright and successful future, learning different things, also learning a whole different culture. Like my parents didn't really understand you know, American culture. They grew up elsewhere all across the world. And so it's been a, a good learning opportunity for all of us to kind of make the most of the American dream. And, and uh, 
you know, truly believe that uh, it's come come to fruition in many ways. What an amazing country, the U.S., the American dream right there with you. Now, when it comes to computers, how do you get into computers? (laughs) Well, my dad's a, a Ph.D. in electrical engineering, so. You know, getting that kind of exposure, you know, you, you read books like Outliers, Malcolm Gladwell, and, you know, they talk about people that just had that kind of built-in advantage with how they grew up. And definitely was was someone like that. We had a computer early on. Uh, we had like a tricolor uh, Mac. I remember using that and playing games on it and learning how to use a mouse and learning how to type uh, 10 fingers at an early age. Uh, and then getting into programming, like getting into software, getting into you know, video games, basic video games. It just kind of was like always an interest of mine, like a tinkerer, like building things, Legos, erector sets, building uh, model rockets and launching them in fields near where we lived. And it kind of always been me that like technology made the most sense for me. I was most attracted to it. I actually wanted to be an astronaut when I was a kid. So uh, unrealized dream there, but a, a good secondary dream with... Uh, being a founder. So I was kind of like always into it. And uh, when I decided what I wanted to be when I grew up, like high conviction, you know, 17, 18, I was like, yeah, I'm going to study engineering, study computer engineering, do some more programming, learn a little bit more and figure it out from there. Now, in, in, in your case, I mean, right away, you got into product engineering and B2B software, which has been, you know, really the, um, the, the steps or the, or the sequences that needed to happen for you to really get into what you're up to now with Link Square. But, uh, but with Link Squares, you know, like right before you got into it, tell us what was that journey like of really understanding B2B software, you know, like what were some of those different roles that you experienced? And then at what point were you like, I think I got it. I, I'm really excited my time to shine. Let's go. Yeah, I I started in B2B software, kind of not knowing where I would fit in, given that I was building electronics for the military, uh, mostly radio frequency electronics for like fighter jets. So I had to learn everything. I didn't know anything about marketing, really, because the defense industry has no marketing. They do all proposals from the government. So I had to learn about marketing, had to learn about how things get sold. And then had to learn about how companies are building and releasing software on a much more rapid cadence. And so my early part of my B2B software journey was really learning the foundation fundamentals. Like, what does a go-to-market program look like? You generate leads. How do you nurture them? How do you warm them up? How do you pass them off to a sales team? What do they do with it? Well, they give them a call. They do a qualification call. So I I take a a lot of pride in in saying that a lot of experts taught me the game kind of hands-on. And I think that is a a big part of the founder journey is when you want to be a founder and you want to learn and go do something, there's so much like rapid learning you're going to do over a long period. I've been operating the company here almost eight years. And there are things that I knew coming in that were really helpful that kind of got the company off the ground. Like I had the basics of outbound and how to do outbound emailing and had an understanding and appreciation for content marketing and building software on rapid release cycles and things like that. And so. Uh, a lot of my early career was just learning, listening, learning, looking at how experts would decide how to dis- uh, solve a problem or debug a problem or fix the business in some way. Those were the formative years for me, for sure. So then at what point, you know, did the idea of uh, Link Squares like really come knocking? I mean, how how was that like? 
Yeah, I worked at a tech company in Boston, uh, about 120 people. And in 2014, we were told that uh, the company would be sold to a bigger company, similar uh, product, a backup product. Bigger company came in and said, uh, well, we need help on this acquisition. And me having a role in operations really led me to be able to do everything and anything, uh, sales ops, revenue ops, marketing ops, data projects, SaaS metrics. And so being part of the team that was helping with the acquisition, one of the requests was, well, we need to know what's inside contracts you signed because we want to move you off AWS. We're using Amazon Web Services as the place we would store all this backed up data. It didn't make sense for the company that bought us. They had their own data center. They weren't a user of this uh, public cloud infrastructure. So they said, we don't want to pay your AWS bill. We want to systematically move all your customers off AWS whose contract uh, says that we can do it without their permission. And they wanted to know that, and they wanted to know the people who had any sort of exceptions or notice. And the answer to that question was impossible. We had thousands of customers, we had thousands and thousands of agreements signed. Some of them were all negotiated or third-party paper using a big company's paper for the contract or the terms of service. It was a real light bulb moment, like, wow, this is a really impossibly hard project. It would take hundreds of hours, thousands of hours to do this manually. And also dealing with most of the contracts are in scam PDF. So that was a real genesis for our first product for Link Squares, uh, what we call Analyze today, which eventually through a lot of conversations, a lot of discovery, ended up becoming a purpose-built repository for contracts to be stored at rest. And then an AI use case to come in and read the contract, tell you what's inside it and extract and create metadata about it. So I guess for the people that are listening to really get it, what ended up being the business model of Link Squares? How do you guys make money? It's a traditional subscription-based software uh, users, and then how many documents we're storing in the analyzed product. And uh, pricing has evolved a lot over the last seven years. Uh, we do something called like a hybrid bundle, which is we give certain stuff away and then kind of provide the ability for folks to pick stuff that's important to them, whether it's API access or various types of integrations. Now we have a, a, a very big product suite. And so the, the truth is that uh, it, it's sold in pieces or sold as a complete end-to-end -end system, really catering to whatever the customer needs, but very traditional user-based, uh, value-based pricing, yeah, what kind of extra bells and whistles people need. That's how we price it. How was the uh, journey tool for you from going to, you know, uh, let's say the engineering side of things to now, you know, more the business side of things? Was that a tough uh, transition? Yeah, uh, being CEO is like the ultimate game in context switching. I mean, even my day, when you build a, a typical day of meetings, it's, I was just meeting with my CMO and then I have a meeting with my head of finance or my CFO. And then we're talking about FP&A planning. And, and then I'm into a product roadmap meeting. And it's just a lot of context switching. And so the, the formative years in SaaS for me were just learning the other parts of the business. I mean, I understood software really well, understood how it got made, had to learn a different development cycle, like a continuous development or continuous integration type model which not the hardest part to learn, but, but to be CEO of a company now that's almost 500 employees and have an amazing executive team, there are experts in every dimension you can rate them, is really understanding deep enough we can go deep on a topic 
and kind of ha- falling back on on those early years where I learned a lot about MQLs and how it works and demand gen funnels and and how do we build a sustainable product roadmap and customer success programs and just learning through absorption, but then putting it to work and then just getting smarter generally. And now in this case, you know, like uh, the sales, you know, the early days of sales, you know, I'm sure that that was not easy. And how do you go about it when you don't come from a sales background? Yeah, luckily my co-founder had a lot more knowledge than I did. I, I think my last time I ever sold anything was like a lemonade stand when I was a kid <laughs> trying to hawk a, hawk a glass That's of lemonade a for, a, for a dollar on the side of the street. Uh, I learned a lot about sales is not the bravado of the pitch. It's not the salesmanship of how you deliver the message, which some of it is, but it's mostly following a well-decided decide and defined process. Uh, making sure everyone's doing the work. Like if I do work and the other person does work on the other side, we're coming to an agreement together and partnering together. They have to go do work on their end. I have to go do work on my end. And learning sales is a science. Now, uh, founder-led sales, uh, I, I always say you're trying to turn like a D minus into a C plus, just trying to kind of survive and learn, doing a lot of learning. It's so important though for founders to not offshore the the revenue generation until maybe like a million at ARR or approaching a million at ARR, because you really need to learn what people perceive about your product. Uh, ultimately, you want product market fit. So that market fit part is good to just keep on hearing it, taking a lot of at-bats. I mean, conversion rates in the early days were pretty bad, maybe 10%, maybe less than 10%, 5%. So we needed to, to learn the muscle, like how are we just gonna build more at-bats, right? We're taking more and more at-bats Every single week, we're getting better at the pitch. We're getting better at the demo and generating more and more at bats for us to continue to refine it. And then getting into like closing. How do you close? Like, we didn't realize like security questionnaires would be a big part of it. So, like, how do you get through a security questionnaire? I I didn't really know how when we got started, but, you know, maybe now to my credit, I did maybe four or 500 of them. I can probably do them in my sleep still. And you learn what you don't know and you learn it fast. And I think that's a, a great part of the founder journey is you just have to learn everything really fast. Like you got a customer ready to buy, get to get through their internal processes, procurement, you got to learn how to deal with that. It's just like continuous learning. I, mean, I was still doing it now every day. Hey guys, this episode is brought to you by .tech Domain. So I mean, obviously if you're a startup or an entrepreneur, you got to be super careful on how you go about your presence and how you get the catchy domain. And that's why I recommend .tech Domains as the go-to place to really get your own domain. A good example here is Aurora.tech, which is an innovative brand that has the .tech Domain associated to it. Aurora.tech actually works at the intersection of rigorous engineering to address one of the most challenging issues of our generation, which is transforming the way that people and goods move. It is set to launch Horizon, which is Aurora's first autonomous service that's designed to bring safety, value, and efficiency to carriers and fleet owners. I've actually arranged an amazing deal for all of you, and that is you can get your one-year domain for $10 or a five-year domain for $50. Just go to go.tech forward slash dealmakers. And that's again, go.tech forward slash dealmakers to get your own. And now when it came to uh, really knowing that you guys were into something with Link Squares, I mean, what was that moment where you're, when you were like, I think we're into something here? 
Yeah, five customers the first year we ever tried to sell it. Then we had added another 25 the second year. We had added a, a few folks uh, like BDRs, uh, business development reps to just help us, again, generate more at-bats. We were just mostly concerned with generating more at-bats. Uh, the year that uh, we uh, crept towards and then crossed a million ARR, and we had maybe 10, 12, 13 people in the business. We had a CTO, Eric, still with me, and, and he was taking care of the engineering bill. They hired a product manager. He was running the roadmap. I, I was kind of starting to maybe oversee things a little bit more. I was doing a lot of the sales. And at a million ARR, and you know, that was that was maybe like 50 customers or like right around 50 customers started to feel like, okay, hey, we made it to a million. Now let's get to 10. And the journey to get to 10, we did in two years and three months from one to 10. And really felt like we had learned a lot about where we live in a broader market too. You, know, you can found a company academically, you can read a bunch of studies and you can read a bunch of uh, market analyses and you can say, this is really great, right? And we, we really never did that. What we did was we focused on solving a real business problem. And then kind of years later, we figured out, okay, this is contract management software. That's the larger economy that we're a part of. We're a piece of it. You kind of learn about what you're trying to do and like where you're trying to position the company. And then ultimately, the year we did uh, like one to four million in one year, we added 127 logos, new logos in one year. It's like 30 people in the company. I mean, it was flying off the shelf. We really knew we had something and uh, you know, raised capital on the back of this success and kept going. So how did it look like raising capital? How much capital have you guys raised to date? Uh, 161.5 million uh, five rounds venture capital. My God, that's a lot of zeros. We shall. So uh, how did you guys go about uh, raising that money? What was the uh, experience of going through all these different rounds? Yeah, uh, the same every round. I mean, the odds really never change. You have to be a pretty special company to raise venture capital money. You know, most, most of venture capitalists as a job role is saying no. For whatever reason, uh, small markets are not the right idea or don't feel confident in in building a big business. And so the seed round definitely, you know, opened my eyes to what the realities were raising real institutional capital. So we had done some friends and family, we had done some super angels before that. But then re raising real institutional venture capital, you almost don't know what you don't know. And so that there's always been kind of part of the learning is the first time you do it, you don't really know what you don't know. And then the next time you do it, you're better at it. The third time you do it, you're even better at it. The fourth time you do it, you're better. The fifth time you do it, you're really good at it. And, and it's just like a learning thing. But I mean, the thing that I've learned the most is you only need one person and you got to try, try to take as many at-bats as you can. And you got to do them all at the same time. No single threads. I think that's a mistake I see a lot of founders make is they, they single thread like one investor. We're going to go down the, we're going to try to walk down the aisle figuratively with one investor. I mean, really, you got to try to walk down the aisle with 30 investors because when you get to the altar, if you get three people there at the same point in time, there's a good economics of then how you can understand like, do I have the best offer I saw in the market or do I have to restart the process from scratch on a single thread? So multi-threading, do as many parallel conversations, which just means like, 
fundraising is a team sport. Uh, it, I, I, I'm the, the first baton of the relay race, which is the big pitch deck and the vision and talking about the future. And then the next card we turn over is like what we call supplemental information, which I get my CRO involved and my CMO and my, and my VP of product and my CTO. And you know, then they, they fill in the rest of the business. We talk about you know, unit economics. And then after the term sheet comes out and is signed, then I kind of take a backseat to my CFO and my chief legal officer to actually do the financial diligence and then close on the doc. So it's really like a team sport. It takes a lot of sacrifice. We talk about like, you know, 20 hour days for a month and you burn out hard. That's why like I run the first part of the relay race and I'm happy to give the baton after the term sheet is in and signed. Uh, and, and you just learn it. You don't even know what you don't know. A lot of fundraising is not real life, what you read about. And I believe that fundraising is not real life. Running a business is real life. Fundraising is just something you have to get good at, uh, do well. It, it helps fuel the business like water in the body. Yeah. And then from there, you go out and, and you make the most of it with the capital you have and the vision you have. And you go put it to work. Operating is really everything. So for the people that are listening that are now you know, thinking about raising money, getting out there, maybe for the first time. What is fundraising and what is not fundraising? <laughs> fundraising is not what you read in TechCrunch. <laughs> I'll tell you that much. Fundraising is sensationalized as you know, some monumental, awesome achievement. Like build a business, solve a real problem in this world, build a real business. One that has traction or users or revenue or something, you're adding value to someone's life, especially in B2B. You're solving a business problem through software that has not been solved before or not been solved before well. You're going to get far if you keep that front and center and don't keep what you read about on TechCrunch front and center. What you read about in TechCrunch is built on a business that has something. And I think a lot of the world got completely misbalanced in 2021 and, and early part of 2022, where fundraising became real life and prices were uh, obscene and valuations were insanity. And, and now we know in the world in 2023, a lot of it's been corrected. But you can't be obsessed with like price uh, and never, never choose a one uh, venture capitalist offer versus another on price. Choose it on people. You are stuck with an investor who buys equity in your company. It's harder to get out of like uh, 10 marriages. Like you're married to 10 different people. You, you could get out of that faster than you could get out of an investor that, you know, you don't like the old, uh, I'm snowed in at an airport. Can I survive with this person for uh, overnight for six, eight, 10 hours, whatever. Y you have to lens it with like people that you like. And that means you should probably build relationships over time and try not to do 30-day fiance where you're walking down the aisle with someone you barely know or you don't know how they will react. You try to create a longer horizon, which means a CEO, you got to get out there and talk to VCs all the time. I try to do uh, a meeting a week, if not more than a meeting a week of just people are either reaching out to me or me uh, using my network to try to talk to others, just build that pipeline. It's just like sales. So you're going to do better if you have more pipeline. You're going to do more sales. You're going to be successful in your fundraisers. You have more opportunities. You can run them all in parallel. And that's the secret. But 
fundraising is a team sport, but it's a mostly a reflection on how well you're doing today and how big your vision is and building a big company. Like, how are you going to build a big company? And that, and that's, that's the secret to what it actually is. And then getting so, back to work and working afterwards well, yeah. after it's done. Fundraising is not a milestone, it's a stepping stone. So I'm right there with you. Now, when it comes to vision, you know, and obviously this is something that uh, you enrolled, you know, those investors and also the people that you have to jump in because of the future, the compelling future that you guys are, you know, putting together there at the Link Squares. But if you were to go to sleep tonight, Vishal, and you wake up in a world where the vision of Link Squares is fully realized, what does that world look like? Yeah, we're, we're really excited about uh, in-house legal teams, and that's our buyer of our software, in-house legal teams. And we're really excited about what's going on with them, regardless of what we do. And, and that makes for really interesting moments in different markets as markets change. The general counsel or the head of the legal team or the chief legal officer, they themselves are going through a big transformational journey. And so if I woke up and saw all of our vision come true, it's like the general counsel has bought seven, eight, nine products from us if you're a big company. And we're really helping on the original mission, which is we're trying to move your business forward faster. We're going to try to elevate the status of the legal team inside the company. I mean, I mean, yes, it's important the software works. And buttons and tables and drop downs and features and this widget and this workflow. And but if you go past all of that, the legal team are buyers desperate for data like their peers on the management team, like finance and marketing and revenue, engineering, they all have data. They, they can all use data as a way to make their future better. My vision is that every legal team in the world uses a LinkScores product to help make their life just a little bit better, more efficient, use data, and really modernize themselves much like their peers have done. And, and that's like mission complete. Now, in this case, you know, for culture, I mean, culture really, you know, it's it's all about people, no? And 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 the people that uh, that you rallied here, you know, on this vision, you know, it's it's also a big one is the culture that you've been able to uh to that you guys have been able to assemble there for Link Square. So, how do you guys think about culture and and also how how, how many people do you have now? It's almost four hundred and fifty now. Uh, and, and a lot of them live in the Boston area, maybe 300 live in the Boston area. And then we, we run parts of our, uh, build team, uh, our engineering product design team, uh, throughout America in, in uh, over 20 States. So culture is like really interesting. Like everyone always asks that, like, Oh, what's the culture of link squares? And, and, and it's, it's never anything that we wrote down in the early years. But then over a longer period of time, you realize that the people that did the best in the company could make it through hard times, could help each other out, could could lend an extra hand or do that extra 2% to, to help someone out, really codified and solidified maybe when we were at 50, 60, 70 people. We kind of identified what that prototype person is who's going to fit in with who we are. We didn't start the company on founding values, but they shaped organically. And that's definitely the best way to go forward with it is, is figure out who you are based on what you all believe is true. And, and so in Link Squares, like we believe in being team first. Like, 
Like we're always just helping each other out. Even in the early days, hey, you need an extra hand with that? Yeah, sure. I'll help QA this new feature with you. I'll, I'll go QA it myself too, even though I don't have anything to really do with it. I'll click buttons and tell you if it works or not. And you know, we're team first and we're customer driven. We've always been customer driven, right? Our customers have their hands on the steering wheel and we're in charge of the gas pedal. And, and that's how we got the company to where it is. We've just been very disciplined on not trying to steer it to our own selfish needs and wants, right? What we think is cool. What we think is cool doesn't matter. What our buyers think is cool, that's really awesome, right? And, and doing what you say, operating a high accountability, and then being all in. I mean, those are our four company values. It's team first, customer driven, do what you say, all in. And the all in thing was really interesting. It's like, what does it mean to be all in? It's like, we're not going to stop. In good times, we're going to go harder. In bad times, we're going to support each other, bring each other up. And we're not going to fail in this mission that we started out with, which is helping every legal team in the world do something better than what they're doing today, which is not great. Using manual processes and email and spreadsheet, let's, let's fix all this together. And we were those people and before we wrote it down. I love that. Now... Imagine, you know, we've been talking about, you know, the future too, and, and what I like to do is talk about the past, but talk about the past with a lens of reflection. So imagine if I was to put you into a time machine, you know, and I brought you back in time, you know, maybe to 2014, 2015, where you were now starting to think about maybe a world where you would, you know, take the leap of faith and, and, and go at it on your own. And you had the opportunity of sitting down with that younger Vishal. And you were able to give that younger Vishal one piece of advice before launching a business. What would that be and why, given what you know now? I would tell, I would I would tell Vishal that the sales part will definitely in the early days be the most valuable and the most hardest and learn everything you possibly can about how to sell a piece of software over Zoom to another human. And the tactics and the, and the tips and the tricks, how to do it more efficiently and how to get a, a defined sales process that not only helps you learn what to build next, helps you create opportunities that are, that are much more real. And I would, I would focus on that. And the rest of it, you'll learn over time. But if you can max, maximize how much learning you have in sales, Probably could have got the company going even faster, you know, sooner. I love that. So, uh, Vishal, for the people that are listening that would love to reach out and say hi, what is the best way for them to do so? For sure. Uh, would love to do that. Uh, LinkedIn is the best. Send me a message. Connect with me. I'm pretty active on there. Amazing. Well, hey, Vishal, thank you so much for being on the Dealmaker Show today. It has been an honor to have you with us. Thank you, Alejandro. Really appreciate it. If you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value, either from this episode or from the show itself, share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember that if you need any help, whether it is with your fundraising efforts or with selling your business, you can reach me at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to alejandrocremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.